0: People say that i threw my brain away that i'm a logical and don't have much to Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I want to do a little bit of review of a debate that I had recently with Will Duffy on open theism. I'm going to present some of the same content that I had there. I'm going to review uh, or, or redo my opening statement there uh, in whole, uh, but I'm also going to go through some of the items that I had prepared to discuss, but which didn't actually come up either in the Q&A or um, uh, the discussion afterwards, or the open questions from the audience. And I'm also going to give some reactions to some of the things that he said in his opening statement and closing statement, which I wasn't able and didn't have time to address as well. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about the debate strategy for uh, why I was as uh, rough and tumble with Will Duffy uh, as I've ever been with anybody. So uh, I want to go through some of that. If you appreciate this content, or any of the content here at the Freed Thinker Podcast, please consider becoming a patron. You can become a patron by visiting the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com and click on the Become a Patron link at the top, or visit Patreon. You can always go there and subscribe uh, and and give your donations there on Patreon. Either way works. You can also, if you uh, aren't able to financially support the show but want to continue to help, uh, you can go over to iTunes and click on the... Uh, rating give a rating and write a review.'d greatly appreciate that Now uh, let's dive right into this episode where I review the debate with will Duffy. Enjoy the show <laughs> For those of you who weren't aware, I recently had a debate on open theism with a gentleman named Will Duffy. You can find that over on YouTube if you look up either of our names together, debate open theism, or you can visit The Gospel Truth on YouTube, uh, hosted by Marlin. You can go and check that out if you want to see the entire debate that I'm discussing. Here, I'm going to, I'm going to state my opening statement. I'm going to reread my opening statement for you. Uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to see it over there or don't, aren't going to go over and check out the YouTube debate, you can do uh, that if you want to see it and, and kind of skip this portion of it. But then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give some debate thoughts. I'm going to go through some of the other material that I had prepared. I'm planning on doing a small series dealing with open theism. and doing my research for this, I realized that open theism, I, I thought it was just a, a heresy and an error dealing with one aspect uh, of the nature of God, God's omniscience. However, what I found in debating is it's it's hermeneutically problematic, it's biblically problematic. We all know that uh, it's inconsistent on its uh, on its trinitarian views. It's wildly untrinitarian. It it has major problems in understanding how the Trinity. Uh, is, is to be understood. Uh, it starts in the same way that it has an error, and we'll, I'll, I'll talk about this in the opening and after, in the same way that it gets the analogy of faith exactly backwards. It also gets its Trinitarian theology exactly backwards, where normally we ought to understand the unity of the Godhead first and primarily And then we understand uh, how we get into the diversity of the persons of the Godhead after that. But what is grounded within the unity, he gets that entirely backwards and starts with uh, the personhood first. It gets into all kinds of problems. It comes to the debate where... He somehow thinks that the Trinity is one person and three persons, uh, that God is one person, and then there are the individual persons of the Trinity, uh, which is wildly problematic. Uh, It causes him to deny and distort uh, a whole host of attributes, um, uh, almost almost every single incommunicable attribute. Um, So not only is omniscience, uh, denied, uh, redefined, and denied, but show is omnipresence, so is immutability, so is simplicity, so is the satiety, um, so is uh, omni, uh, uh, um, omnipotence. Uh, there, there's a whole host of things. Sovereignty is gone, foreknowledge is, is clearly gone, um, providence is, 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 is massively watered down. Um, and so the, a lot of this comes up in the discussion. Uh, the atonement the theory of the atonement is all out of whack there are so many problems with it Uh, his understanding of the hypostatic union is 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 wildly messed up there there's a whole host of things um, and and as we're going to see really what's what's happening is um, is the open theist almost views god um, like a pagan views zeus just a lot more powerful and creative <laughs> that, that's it, it's really Zeus as creator, um, which is which is what we'll see. Uh, because God, you know, experiences emotion and suffering and changes his mind and can lie to us and can deceive us. And his word, you know, can can tell us things that aren't actually true and misleading and so on. So there's there's so many problems with the view. So I'm going to do a series touching on a bunch of those. So, but for this episode, I want to go over the debate specifically. Again, I'm going to I'm gonna, in a moment. I'm going to read through my opening statement and then I'm going to go through um, some responses to what his opening statement was and then go through some other mater- uh, prepared material so we can see uh, some of the pro- responses. So. Here is. Let me start with my opening statement. I'll let you know when the opening statement is done. It's about right around 15 minutes. Uh, if you've watched the debate already and you want to skip this portion, uh, you can skip from about to about 15 minutes from now. So let me get started with that. So first, I'd like to start with a reminder of the topic. Does the Bible teach that God knows the future? Here, I take this to be a question about if God has significant for knowledge of the future, not the kind of knowledge that he would have if he created a purely chemical cosmos and could know all chemical reactions. Here, we're concerned with more significant knowledge. Does God know the fates of nations, the eternal destinies of men, the sins they will choose, and so forth? Basically, those facts of reality which are rooted in the free will actions of significantly free and morally responsible agents within his good creation. Here I will be arguing from an internal critique of the negation of the question as strong evidence for the affirmative. By the way, let me stop here. Actually, this wasn't part of my opening statement. But over and over again, he kept saying that I haven't, that I didn't argue from the Bible for um, for a view that the Bible actually teaches God knows the future. Well, um, not only did I do that multiple times after he said that, to be fair, he he, he said it repeatedly and I brought up verses where uh, I think it demonstrates that, but I, I expressly said that there is a strong case for the affirmative that the Bible teaches that God knows the future by arguing from an internal critique of the negation of that right? If I can show the, neg- the negation of that, the negative view of that is internally inconsistent and false, it's strong evidence. It's a strong argument for the affirmative, right? If I can disprove the negative, then I have proven the affirmative, right? So he just doesn't understand what an internal critique of the negation would entail, um, which, is, which is just, he, he, uses, uh, he, he uses language to make it sound like he understands philosophy and epistemology, but he really, really doesn't. Um, that, that's one feature that regularly comes up. So, back to the opening statement. From here, there are multiple places that I could go to address the innumerable issues with open theism. I could go after its metaphysical commitment to a libertarian, indeterminate notion of freedom, as well as the numerous problems that arise from such a view, often arbitrarily making the free agent actually neither free nor morally responsible. I could attack systematic theological considerations about how open theism necessarily entails those who affirm it to deny fundamental aspects of the nature of God, like his aseity, immutability, timelessness, simplicity, and so forth. However, I'm sure these will come up in the discussion of the Q&A to follow. So what I want to do now with my brief time is to talk about their fundamental hermeneutical flaw and give some examples how this plays out in their own proof text, showing that their view is not drawn from the scriptures, which we all agree is our ultimate authority, or at least we all say that we do. Open theists tend to have a poor grasp of the hermeneutical principle called the analogy of faith or the rule of faith. This is the principle of interpretation where we prioritize the clear over the unclear, the didactic over the narratival. We understand that the clearer and more theologically intended passages should take the controlling priority over how we should draw theological inferences from narratives or parables or apocalyptic or poetry, for example. Here, the open theists commonly will take their narratival inferences as the controlling concept, and reinterpret the more clear and didactic statements of scripture about the same topic. By the way, we saw this, again, I'm cutting into the opening statement, we saw this over and over again in the debate with Will Duffy. I called him on it probably a dozen times. Um, He just instantiated this in spades in our discussion following our opening statements. So, Back to the opening statement. So, for them, narrative passages that have God changing his mind in the course of time, for example, take conceptual priority over more expressly stated passages that God knows all things in heaven above and on earth below and does not change his mind like a man. This manner of interpretation is wildly problematic. Here, open theist and New Testament scholar Gregory Boyd argues that all he and his ilk are doing is taking the quote-unquote normal or plain reading of these passages as literally as we would others. But is it the case that they take the plain meaning of the text or that they understand it in light of clear passages? We'll see. Genesis 22.12 is a common passage used by open theists like Boyd to attempt to demonstrate their case that God grows in knowledge or has to have something demonstrated to him about free decision before he knows it. By the way, this passage, and pretty much every passage that I brought up and refuted on the open theist reading, uh, Duffy brought up in his opening statement. So I was, I was like doing a little happy dance because uh, he was basically proving my point. Uh, back to the opening. Boyd argues that he just takes the plain meaning, but let us, uh, but let us see if sim- if he's simply applying the analogy of faith shows how wrong his handling of this text is. Duffy often mentions his website where he lists 33 categories of verses that he claims to support open theism. He did this in his tired uh, closing statement, by the way. And this text, Genesis 22, 12, is his number one example for his category number 14, God wants to see what men will do, which Duffy himself describes as, quote, he tests men, looks to see, searches, and didn't know what men would do, end quote. Here, I think we'll see how Duffy and other open theists handle these texts as just abysmally bad and why we should question all of his categorical treatments of scripture. Following Abraham's willful attempt to sacrifice Isaac in accord to the demands that God had placed upon him just before the knife was plunged, the angel of the Lord calls down from heaven and tells Abraham, quote, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. End quote. Now, there are numerous problems with the open theist's handling of this text and whether or not the open theist can consistently apply their method of interpretation that they use here elsewhere in the Bible. Now, notice in providing this passage as a proof text for uh, for the openness thesis that God learned something new, and thus they claim the future was unsettled to God, it actually raises questions of if God can even know the present or even the past given their own hermeneutics. The question, does God know the future, then quickly becomes, does God know or even know the present or even the past? Now, notice that in the passage, we're told that God now knew that Abraham feared the Lord. Well, was it not the case that Abraham feared the Lord before Genesis 22? Are we to believe that prior to this, did God not know Abraham's inner spiritual condition and convictions? By the way, again, cutting from the opening statement, this was actually a large portion of our discussion after our opening statements and Duffy acted like I hadn't talked about this at all for multiple paragraphs for almost actually, I'm only a quarter of the way through for about a page and a half in single, uh, in, you know, um, Single line font. He acted like I hadn't addressed this, or like, uh, or, or like many theologians hadn't talked about this. It's like it, it came out of the blue from him that anyone has ever responded to open theists on this, which was surprising for someone who basically dedicates his entire life to de- to, to defending and promoting this open theist heresy. Okay, back to the opening. Okay, if we think of First Chronicles twenty eight nine, which says that God understands. Every intention of the thoughts of our hearts. Or First Samuel 16, 7 that says that God knows us not as we know each other, which it refers to clearly in the context as our external actions, but rather that he knows our hearts, then we can see why that's so problematic that the open theistic view, God does come to know Abraham by his external action, which is the very thing that these two passages in First Chronicles 28, nine and 1 Samuel 16.7 says is not how he comes to know us. On open theism, God needed to test Abraham for him to know the heart of Abraham. Notice, God wasn't testing Abraham to know the propositional truth about if Abraham would follow the command in the future, but rather that he would need the test in order to know Abraham's own heart by observing if Abraham would follow the command in the future. He wasn't trying to find out if Abraham would drop the knife, but if Abraham was God-fearing in his heart. Notice that what the passage actually says is that now I know you fear God since you have not withheld your son. So coming to know that he did not withhold his son is what demonstrated to God that God could now know if Abraham feared him in his heart. Well, there's a major problem with that. Uh, He, uh, the open theist cuts off the nose to spite the face of determinism. In order to avoid a settled view of the future, they propose a reading of a passage where God does not even know the present or know the heart of Abraham, which is expressly the kind of knowledge we're told repeatedly in the Bible that God has. However, we can add more to why their refusal to properly employ the analogy of faith causes problems for them. In Romans 4, remember a more didactic passage which ought to help us understand narrative passages like Genesis 22. In Romans 4, we're told that Abraham had such strong faith in God that he believed in God's promise that Sarah would bear him a son even when they were well beyond childbearing age. Starting in 4.18, we're told that he did not labor in unbelief and that in hope against hope and without becoming weak in faith and while giving glory to God, Abraham believed God's promise that he would become a father to many nations and that this was credited to him as righteousness. And this is the same righteousness that's compared to our saving righteousness imputed to us in Christ by faith. Well, this was far before Genesis 22 in the life of Abraham. So is it really the case that God didn't know until he observed the free action of Abraham in Genesis 22 if Abraham honored God in his heart or not? By the way, again, breaking from this, you'll notice in the discussion, if you listen to the debate, that Duffy tried to say, well, that it's because Abraham lost his faith at some point along the way. Again, not only does the text not say that, so he's already showing that the open theist doesn't actually take the plain or literal meaning, but here he's ignoring that Romans 9 says expressly that he was without becoming weak in faith and while giving glory to God. So not only does he appeal to something that isn't in the text, that, that Abraham somehow lost his faith between the promise uh, in Genesis 15 and the, the, this, this command in Genesis 22, but also that it goes against the fact that Romans says that he didn't become weak in faith. So the open theist here is not following even his own, he's not only not following the analogy of faith, but he's not even following his own commitment to read the, the, the literal or the plain sense, again, whatever that means for them. Okay, back to the opening. Abraham shows up in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, and his faithfulness is shown to begin with his call and sojourn up out of Ur of the Chaldeans, up through his commitment to the command of God in Genesis 22. Only on open theism, God needed to have this test in order to discover how Abraham would respond in order to know the heart of Abraham. In fact, in Hebrews eleven 19, we're told that it is the heart of Abraham from the moment he was given the command, had committed to do the deed because he believed in his heart that Isaac was the child of promise, and that if he killed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. Wouldn't God know this about Abraham at the time prior to their ascent up the mountain? Why would he need to test the test to be completed for him to know this about Abraham's heart if we're told over and over in the Bible, and open theists claim they agree with, that God knows our hearts perfectly? So on open theism and their own use of passages like Genesis 22— To the exclusion of more didactic and clearer ones, such as Romans 4 and Hebrews 11, the open theist not only denies future knowledge to God, but also denies present knowledge and the intimate heart and soul knowledge of every person which the Bible expressly ascribes to him. In fact, there are more problems for this. For Boyd and Duffy and others, this test was enough for God to know that Abraham was faithful to him. But given the long history of Abraham being faithful to him and still needing the test to know his heart, what confidence could God possibly have that Abraham would continue to be faithful to him? It seems that when a test is over, a new test would be needed, and a new one, and a new one after that, and one after that, and so forth. For if libertarian freedom is true, and God does not know the future free choices of men, then God could always be caught unawares by any of us at any time, and a test would always be needed. Now, remember what Boyd and others like Pennick and Sanders and Duffy himself will say, that they are just reading the plain meaning of these passages. Well, are they? And do they do it consistently? We've already seen that they don't do it with Genesis 22. But what about Genesis 3, where God walks in the garden and calls out to Adam to find out where he is? Boyd quickly dismisses this as an anthropomorphism because of his commitment to God's present knowledge of where Adam and Eve were at that very moment. By the way, again, breaking in, Duffy doesn't even say that this is anthropomorphic. He actually says that this is a theophany where God comes down and God is limiting himself and so that God, uh, God doesn't actually know or that this is somehow a didactic teaching. But again, none of that is in the passage. So uh, Duffy can't even claim that it's the plain meaning, but neither can Boyd. Why? And back to the opening statement. Why? Why not take the plain meaning? What is it textually about Genesis 3 and that statement of God as opposed to Genesis 22? Why is one the plain meaning and one must be taken as anthropomorphic? It seems simply because the open theist begs the question of the selected passage that they want to support their view. Or what about another event in the life of Abraham, when God comes to Abraham as a theophany with two angels to inform him of his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain? In Genesis 18, 20 to 21, we read, quote, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, then I will know, end quote. Well, How does the open theist read a passage like this? Do they take the plain meaning, in which case they would need to deny that God even knows past events? For God is here coming to see if what they had done in the past matches the outcry that had come up to his throne in the past, which if read according to the openness thesis and hermeneutic would entail that God didn't know the past, or if it was presently true of the cities of the plains. In fact, the openness thesis seems to even entail a denial not only of the omniscience of God, but also the omnipresence of God, since here the plain reading would entail that God needed to go down to the cities to see it for himself, and only then would he know. Again, why does the open theist not apply their same hermeneutical commitments to passages like this one? Breaking aside again, actually, this, the shocking thing was that Duffy bought the bullet on this in our discussion. He actually said, yeah, in this theophany, God limits himself. God actually isn't, for this time period, omnipresent. I know. And in order to answer the question about if God knew the present or the past, he said, yeah, God limits His knowledge. During this incident, God didn't know the past or the present exhaustively. Wow. He, ha- he actually bit the bullet, but he went there. He denied basically all of the omni-attributes in one go. Anyways, back to the back to the opening statement. Bespi- besides special pleading that they just don't like the entailments, which we don't either, there's no reason given the openness thesis and hermeneutical commitment to do so showing that they handled texts in an entirely ad hoc and special pleading manner. What about other openness, uh, favorite openness-proof texts, such as verses that have God saying something like, it never entered my mind that, such as Jeremiah 7, 31, 19, 5, and 32, 35. By the way, breaking in here, several times Duffy brought this up, even in his closing, where he talks about the, it never entered my mind passages, and said, Tyler never addressed these. I spend about half a page in in single line text, dealing with this passage. So it's just, it's just flat out dishonest to say that I never dealt with it. He actually never responded to my objections. Okay, back to the opening. Ignoring that the Hebrew term labe almost always means heart and reflects the moral character, meaning these passages clearly reflect God's holiness. It didn't enter his 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 heart, his holiness, not his knowledge, and as such easily fit within the Reformed understanding of the prescriptive of revealed will of God for humanity, not his decreative will. So ignoring all of that, of these three statements, uh, Boyd writes, quote, Three times the Lord expresses shock over Israel's ungodly behavior by saying that they were doing things which did not enter, uh, which he did not command nor decree, nor did it enter his mind. However, we understand the the phrase, it would at the very least seem to preclude the possibility that the Israelites' idolatrous behavior was eternally certain in God's mind. If the classical view is correct, we have to be willing to accept that God could in one breath say that the Israelites' behavior did not enter his mind, though their behavior was eternally in his mind. If this is not a contradiction, what is? Well... On open theism, God knows all possible futures, including this one. He just doesn't know which one would be actualized. So if it's, it's just flat-out dishonest for Boyd to pretend that these actions weren't in the mind of God when his own view affirms that these actions, along with every other possible action, were all in the mind of God. Also, it's just trivially easy to show how these statements are meant to be taken as hyperbole to express the utter wickedness of the actions rather than some ontological statement about the metaphysics of the knowledge of God. For the idolatry in these passages is that of following false gods to the point of burning their own children in sacrifice, specifically to Molech. Yet this is exactly what God warns Israel would do if they fell into idolatry in the land way back in Deuteronomy 12, 31 and 1810. In fact, the child sacrifice to Molech, specifically described in Jeremiah 32, is expressly warned against by name in Leviticus 1821. Not to mention that the sacrificing of children to false gods by the Jews had already happened just a century before under the reigns of King Ahaz in 2 Kings 16.3 and King Hosea in 2 Kings 17.17. So again, given the openness thesis, if they want to try and be consistent with their own hermeneutic, it seems that they cannot even affirm God has past knowledge in this case. In fact, he'd have to forget what he knew in the past, what he already knew, and he'd have to forget that he warned them that it would happen and that he condemned the action of the two wicked kings just 100 years before. He'd not only have to not have past knowledge, he'd have to forget knowledge he had in the past, which is just absurd. So for the open theist to say that these statements express the idea that these behaviors never entered God's mind literally is just obtuse. Now, we could do the same exercise for passages where God asks questions, where the future is stated as conditioned on choices, where God sets signs of remembrance, and so forth, But what we'll find over and over is that the open theist will always come to these texts and these texts only, never to passages like Genesis 3, and will beg the question of their philosophical commitment to an unsettled future, assuming a kind of libertarian incompatibilistic indeterminism, which actually is their end goal, by the way. They they are coming to these passages because they need these to work so that we have a libertarian indeterminism. Now, their view is simply not drawn from a careful, consistent, exegetical, or hermeneutically responsible reading of God's word. They do not use their hermeneutics when it comes to Genesis 3, 6, 13, 15, 17, and 18, or at least some don't. Duffy, again, in the debate doubled down and actually bit the bullet. Uh, Back to the opening. And they assume those passages are anthropomorphic. Why? Because they know that God does have exhausted knowledge of the past and the present. Well, again, except for Duffy, apparently. Or at least they claim to know it despite their system undermining those very things. Duffy admitted it undermined those very things because he denied them, which was surprising when he bit the bullet. So why is it when they come to the sum of these narratives and ignoring more didactic passages, they suddenly want this so-called plain meaning? Well, because they already come to the text denying exhaustive divine foreknowledge to God, and so they can question, beg their position, and isogeet these texts in a totally ad hoc manner. Now, I'd be happy to go into more passages like this, or to discuss the philosophical assumptions of libertarian incompatibilistic indeterminacy as we progress. Although that didn't really come up in the discussion that much. Uh, so let me. Uh, that that basically ends the opening statement. Now. I act I had a whole bunch of questions prepared I got some of them for Duffy uh, after his opening statement um, but let me let me talk let me go through a little bit of of these. Uh, of some of the things that I had prepared before going into the to this debate, um, and, and discuss some of the passages uh, that came up a little bit, um, but some of the ones that didn't, and we'll go into uh, some of the some of the problems for why the open theist the openness view is is really 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 problematic. So if let's let's look at numbers uh, twenty three for example, this came up in the in the discussion. Uh, uh, that, that he wanted to continue to bring up, uh, and I showed uh, some of the problems with this. So Numbers 23, verse 19, says, quote, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? End quote. Now, we can parallel that God cannot lie with the statement that God cannot repent, now the openness thesis would need to say that He can do both, and in fact Duffy actually does say that He can do both. Duffy says that God, because He has libertarian freedom, absolute libertarian freedom, He can lie, right? So He ignores passages like this passage in Numbers twenty-three. Uh, he ignores 2 Timothy two three, Titus one two, and Hebrews six eighteen that says not that God doesn't lie, but God cannot lie it's very clear in the new testament it's it's from it's from the greek dunamis he's not able to lie it's not just that he doesn't choose not to he cannot lie which you know in reform theology and classical theology is always a representation of of, of god's uh, of god's perfection god is god is perfectly true <clears throat> and so therefore because his nature is perfectly true he cannot lie but for Duffy, he can, right? But for the for the open theist who doesn't want to commit to that level of absurdity and says, "Okay, well, God, you know, I'm going to agree with the other passages. The plain meaning, he cannot lie." Well, this problem presents a passage. This passage presents a problem because it's it's creating a parallel, right? It's saying God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, right? So he he's making a comparison. He's saying God's not a man because God can't lie, and in the same way, he's not a man and he can't repent. <laughs> that, that's thats the point of this, is that he cannot lie and he cannot repent. The open theist is gonna have to say that he does both. Duffy bites the bullet, but we ought not to. So what happens then when we come to a passage like 1 Samuel 15, 28, 29, right? Uh, this, th- this, this is an interesting passage because it, th- this statement is, is sandwiched between Two passages where it says that God repents of making Samuel king, or sorry, of making Saul king, right? So he repents of making Saul king. This passage comes up, and then he repents of making Saul king, uh, king again. So what does this passage say, though? It says, So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. It makes the same connection as Numbers does between lying and between not lying and not repenting. So how is it um, that, that the open theist can come here and say, okay, well, I'm going to look at the two verses that talk about God relenting or or, or repenting or regretting that he made Saul king uh, and completely skip the one, the didactic statement, right? It goes into this narratival statement, the Lord saying, oh, you know, I, I, I repent of making Saul king in the previous uh, verse, but they completely ignore this one where, where Samuel says, but he's not a man that he should change his mind, right? It's this, by the way, the, the same hebrew word underlines uh the 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 verb uh in in all three cases right it can be represented as repent change of mind regret something along those lines it's the same hebrew word right the open theist wants to say that it means uh that it means the same thing right they're going to want to say that this that this word has to mean repent or, or, or change your mind. It means the same thing. It can never mean anything, anything else, right? Which just, which just entails a flat-out contradiction because you have one verse saying that God changes his mind and another one saying he doesn't change his mind, right? What's the problem? How is God not like men if he is like men in the exact ways mentioned, right? If God, if God does change his mind exactly like man does, then what does it even mean when Samuel says, for he's not like a man, that he should change his mind, Right? The, the open theist has a major problem here. Now, everyone else in the world who isn't an open theist, right? And, and again, he kept trying to bring up Calvinism. I actually didn't really appeal to anything specifically Calvinistic. I just appealed to basic orthodoxy for, for pretty much everything in the entire debate. This was not a Calvinist versus open theist debate. Right, This, this was not a Reformed theology versus open theist debate, although nothing I said was out, outside of Reformed orthodoxy. This was just basic uh, Christian orthodoxy. Right, you know, uh, Nicene, Chalcedonian, uh, Chalcedonian, Orthodoxy, right? Th- this is basic stuff, right? You you have God saying in an anthropomorphic way, I I regret, you know, making Saul king. Well, does, can God actually react? Does he actually change his mind? No, he's, he's, just, he's just expressing his moral distaste for what Saul has become. It doesn't mean that God had one plan, is changing his mind and implementing a different plan. The, the, God, God is not changing his mind. This was the plan the entire time. He's just anthropomorphically, in kind of an incarnational way, expressing uh, a, a sentiment His his moral distaste for for Saul's behavior, which, by the way, is not incompatible with any type of of orthodox view of divine determinism and compatibilism. He's just expressing his, his moral distaste from his revealed will about the behavior of Saul. That's it. But, but he's not actually changing his mind. His divine plan is moving forward just fine. There's no contradiction here. The open theists what they believe would entail a contradiction on this. What about the passages like divine forgetfulness or remembrance uh, views where, where God has to you know with Noah where he sets where he sets the, uh, he sets the rainbow in this in, in, the, in the sky so he'll remember right The open theist uh, brings this up to, to try to represent that God God um, doesn't know everything. He doesn't know all the future. Right? Well, here's the problem. They, they bite off more than they can chew with this. Duffy might want might to bite the bullet. He's, he's been the most consistent, which makes it more scary, uh, which makes it m- more heretical. Uh, think about that for a moment, though. You appeal to the rainbow as, as, as proof that God doesn't have omniscience. But the rainbow is meant to remind God of his promise in the past. Right? So, so the straightforward meaning for the open theists, on the if we if we hold their hermeneutic consistent, is that God actually forgot things He knew in the past, right? They they don't just deny. A lot of people say, oh well, open theists they just deny um, future foreknowledge because the future isn't settled because those are the types of things that just you know libertarian choices just can't be settled facts in the future. That's all that open theists say. Well, again, that's just not true. If they go to these divine uh, remembrance passages. And they say, see, this, this is evidence that God doesn't have exhaustive uh, knowledge. Well, this is knowledge of the past. He's, he's, he not only uh, knew something in the past, he's now forgotten something that he's already known in the past. Right? Is that, is that really consistent with the people who try to defend open theism as just being uh, you know, a view that God can't know things that aren't knowable? Because you know future future things aren't future free choices aren't knowable you know ontologically, which you know I disagree with that. But but this is clearly more than that. Open theism clearly dips its toe in this water far deeper than just that. What about confu- you know conditional future texts? If if they do this, then they'll do this. Well, from from our human standpoint, as as things work out providentially for us, the conditions of our free choices come prior to their outcomes. Again, that doesn't mean it's not determined. That doesn't mean that it's not foreknown. It just means that providentially, those conditions precede their outcomes. It doesn't mean that, therefore, God doesn't know or ha- haven't, hasn't determined their outcomes. All right. <clears throat> what about uh, questions about, about future knowledge, right? Um, so, again, he, I'll, I'll get to his opening statement here in a little bit. Which, which by the way, let me, let me say something methodologically here. Uh, I got some pushback. I, I, I got a lot of, a lot of positive uh, praise for, for being one of the first people that could, that could take Will Duffy by the horns. Right? He's debated other people, and he's a, he's a skilled debater. He's a smart guy. He's a nice guy. Um, and and he's, 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 uh, he's been pretty successful about some of Orthodoxy's stronger debaters, uh, as some see it. Right? I, I've never been particularly impressed by his, by his uh, debate performances, but others have. Right, and I got a lot of compliments for being one of the few people that can kind of take Will Duffy by the horns and put him in his place during the debate. I got some other complaints by a lot of people who were saying that I was just being a jerk and I was over talking and I was interrupting. Well, let me let me talk to that for a minute. Now, I admit that I was that I was over talking him and that I was interrupting him and I was trying to keep the I was trying to keep the discussion on course. Right? Because I would ask a question and Will would start going off in a direction that was completely unrelated to what I was asking. So I had to stop him over and over and over again. You'll, if you count how many times I said, well, that's not what I'm asking. Let, let, let's just stop you before you waste five minutes on an answer that has nothing to do with what I asked you. Right. So yes, I overtalked him and I interrupted him to try to keep this conversation on course. If that's being rude, you know, I'm sorry. Right. I, I'm actually not that sorry because I wanted to keep the discussion on course. I'm also not out there insulting him, right? I'm not. I'm not out there calling him names. And I'm not out there calling him stupid. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You know, telling him your your mama jokes. I'm not out there insulting the man, right? But I am going to be as tough with an open theist because I think they are far more dangerous to the church and to orthodoxy right because again as as I'll show they they deny basically you know they deny basically every, almost every single orthodox uh, view right they they implicitly deny trinitarianism they implicitly deny the hypostatic union they deny basically every incommunicable attribute of god they 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 ruin hermeneutics right they they take they take the, the literal hermeneutic of the dispensationalist uh, on on meth like it's it's just insane their um, their their hermeneutic So, I know a lot of times in these debates, I have a debate coming up here in in a few weeks uh, with John Cranman. John Cranman and I have our major disagreements. We've had pretty big fallouts, right? You know, we've had big disagreements with each other. Um, John Cranman is a brother in Christ as far as far as I know he, he's a brother I mean I, I would I would worship with him side by side I'd proclaim the gospel with him side by side I, I wouldn't have an issue um, uh, you know distributing the, the the elements of the Lord's Supper to him i I you know from everything I know of him he, he is a brother right the the debate that I have uh, you know coming up uh, on, on in July on capturing Christianity on Romans 9 uh, the the view of election in Romans 9 uh, should be much more cordial why is that right? <clears throat> A lot of people want all of these debates to always be perfectly cordial and reasonable and, well, we're, you know, we're, the, we're just kind of equal compatriots here. We're all, you know, we're all pilgrims on the way. I'm sorry, but no, that's simply not the case, right? I simply don't buy into the narrative. Uh, I, 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 um, there, there was an essay uh, called Hot Air Balloon Gods. Um, I believe it was by uh, by David Wells. I, I could be wrong, um, but he gives this an, he gives this analogy of, of of pluralism, and there's the problem with with theological pluralism, where where we almost have this expectation of where our gods Yahweh and Baal can stroll arm in arm. That's just not the case. Um, Yahweh does not sit at an equal table with Baal. I'm not going to sit at a round table with someone who, who so fundamentally denies every single aspect of what makes Yahweh Yahweh, what makes the true triune God of Scripture. Uh, effectively, someone who just who, who believes Yahweh is actually just like a big powerful Zeus, I'm sorry, I am not going to give that person an equal footing, an equal chair at the big boy adult orthodox table. It's just not going to happen, right? I am going to, as much as I can, as, as rhetorically, many rhetorical flourishes I can, put that person in their place, right? I want the audience to see their position is futile, false, and worthy of our scorn right? Because it's, 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 it's not only false, it's flat out blasphemous. So I want to make sure that, that people see that. So that, that's why I'm going to be a little bit more, well, quite a bit more rough and tumble with someone like Will Duffy than I am going to be with someone who's a brother like John Cranman, where we're debating, you know, a non-essential I- issue, though I think it's important, has gospel implications, um, like, like the, the view of election in Romans 9. Right, so, so I, I just want to get that out of the way. The the other you know other thing he kept saying is well again you didn't you didn't show divine exhaustive foreknowledge from the scriptures, right? I already started in the beginning by saying well, fair fair enough. Although it came up a lot in the discussion as he kept saying it, I kept bringing it up over and over again. Um, but what I did was an internal critique falsifying the negation of the claim. Right? I, I falsified the view that, that, it, that, that, that God doesn't know the future in the scriptures, right? which, which is strong evidence for the, for the positive. That's why I made that case. So let me now go to some of the biblical passages in favor of exhaustive divine foreknowledge. One of the biggest ones that people always appeal to— is this long section dealing with the false gods in Isaiah 40. Uh, I, think, I think it starts in 41 uh, all the way up to 46, right? So the two passages that I pull out here, though, uh, are Isaiah 46, 8 to 11, and Isaiah 42, 8 through 9. Now, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 reads, Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about, what I have planned, that I will do." Now, a couple things to notice here. Notice, God not only declares the beginning from the end. From ancient times, he's declared the beginning from the end. What that means is, from ancient times, way before things have happened, he's declared the ends from the beginning. He's declared what's going to happen, what comes from certain events. What, what, are, what he, he knows what one thing will cause to bring about. He knows, these, he knows these future things, right? But beyond that, notice that he also calls a man to fulfill his purposes just as easily. This is, this is a comparison, right? This is a Hebrew couplet, right? Just as easily as he would summon a bird from the east, right? Verse 11, from the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose, right? That's a couplet, that's a, in Hebrew poetry, that's a couplet. They are saying the same principle, right? He just as easily can summon a bird of prey from the east as he can have a man to fulfill his purpose. Here, he's speaking specifically of, of a certain king, but the question is, does the man freely come and fulfill the purpose? Well, of course, uh, I, mean, I mean unless the open theist wants to say that, that, that God is doing this by by doing violence to the free will of man couldn't uh, on their view, couldn't the man refuse to do it and do something else? right In a way the bird couldn't right the, the open theist is stuck here saying that that God is is here he would have to say God is speaking in hyperbole that God can try to call a man from far off to fulfill his purpose, but he could be defeated. Right, which by the way means that, that God is not, not omnipotent, right? Omnipotence is that God can can bring about what, whatsoever He desires, right? Any, any logically possible state of affairs that God wants to bring about, He has the power to bring about, and nothing can stop it. But on their view, man can stop it, right? He, but but the passage is telling not only that God can declare the ends from the beginning, from ancient times, but that He can just as easily have a man fulfill His purpose freely uh, as He can summon a bird of east uh, a bird of prey from the east. All right. The next one, Isaiah 42, 8 through 9, says, uh, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. End quote. Notice here, before something happens, God announces it. Um, Now, With these verses, I also, uh, I have an article um, where I deal with some of um, the th- some of the, the implications, I, I, I give an argument, I give a logical syllogism against not only libertarian free will, because I think libertarian free will is false, but I'm not going to focus on that here, right? Because that, some of that can be in-house with uh, you know some of my Arminian uh, brothers and sisters. But here, this I'm going to give, I give two arguments. One uh, is a syllogism against uh, uh, libertarian freedom, which if that's true, open theism is false anyways. But I give one specifically against open theism based on Isaiah 41 to 46 right? Um, there's two passages in Isaiah that I'm going to read, and then I'm going to make it a logical syllogism. Uh, if, you, if you look up my, my syllogistic objection to, uh, against open theism on the blog, you, you'll find the text version of this, right? The passages read, uh, Isaiah 41, 21 to 24, reads, present your case, the Lord says, bring forward your strong arguments, the King of Jacob says, right? Here, here he's challenging the false deities, right? The, fa- the false gods, the pagan deities, <clears throat> and he's challenging them based on specifically they don't know they they don't know the future, right? Uh, verse twenty-two. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. By the way, the open theist chooses a deity just like that. Right? They choose a deity who can't do these things, will be the point of the argument. Right? They choose an abomination. Okay, Isaiah 46, 9-10 through 10 says, Remember the former things lost long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Okay. Now, here's the syllogism. <clears throat> premise one. If a God is not a true God then they cannot declare the future as they can the past. That's from Isaiah uh, uh, 41, 21 to 23. Okay, he, he, he's, he's saying if, if, you're, if you're a true God, you should be able to do these things. If you're not a true God, you're not going to be able to do that. Premise two, Yahweh can declare the future as he can the past. We read that in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. By modus tollens then of one and two, Yahweh is a true God. Premise four, all other gods cannot declare the future as they can the past. That's Isaiah 41, 24. Right? Behold, they, they are of no account. Uh, by the way, you could also uh, get this from the passage that, where, where he says there are no other gods like him. He is the only God. There is none, there is none like him. That is, God is the only one that, de- that can declare the future. So I can not only get this from Isaiah 41, 24. You can also get this from Isaiah 46, 9. Right. Verse five: All other gods are not true gods, from modus ponens from verses one and verse or premise one and premise four. Therefore, implication of three and five: Yahweh is the only true God. Right? That's the argument. Thus, the God of open theism would not pass the very test for a true God that Yahweh established in testing the gods of Babylon, and therefore is a false concept. Of God, That is, he is an idol. He is an abomination that God himself says is an abomination, that God himself sets up the standard for whether or not they are a true God, which again he shows only he. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Why? Because he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times that which has not yet been done. That he, can de- that he can declare these things, but they cannot. They cannot declare what's going to take place. They cannot uh, f- uh, declare the former events what they were. That we may consider another outcome. By the way, this, this also undermines uh, the, their view because they're going to say, well, the future isn't settled because the future isn't causally conditioned. This passage clearly assumes that if they can declare what was in the past, then we can infer their outcome. We should be able to know. They ought to be able to know the outcome because it should be uh, causally linked to what came before. Right? They should be able to look at what came before and know what will come, Right? but they can't do that Right? because they are of no account. Their works are of nothing, and those who choose it are an abomination. Right? So that that's the argument that I would give from Isaiah against the open theist and for the exhaustive foreknowledge of God. Right? Uh, we see in first John 320 that God knows everything <clears throat> it reads quote in whatever our hearts condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things not some things not most things not you know just the things about our heart God knows all things right past present and future would all fall under all things uh, job 3716 God quote who is perfect in knowledge end quote Uh, perfect, by the way, perfect doesn't just mean great. It doesn't mean just like super-duper, right? Perfect means that it is without lack. Something that is perfect is not lacking anything. God is perfect in knowledge. God, therefore, cannot be lacking in knowledge. He cannot lack past knowledge, present knowledge, heart knowledge, or future knowledge, right? This is why we have passages that expressly say that God foreknows. Uh, What about... um, Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 21. This is an interesting one, right? If we compare that to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 talks about Yahweh as a vine dresser, upset that his vineyard, which is, you know, a picture of Israel, has not borne the good grapes that he expected. Now, does this prove that God learned or didn't know or was he truly surprised, right? The open theist will point to this verse and say, see, God's surprised, he didn't know. He, he, he's, he's upset. He's surprised that Israel wouldn't bear the good, good grapes. Right. And he gives some details on what those good grapes are. The problem is, is that in Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 21, God says that it's exactly what would happen. Right, so let me let me pull up Deuteronomy uh, 31, 16 to 21. So Deuteronomy 13, 31, 16 to 21 says this. The Lord says to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of land into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. By the way, how does he know that? If our sin is a libertarian free choice such that God didn't even know if Adam was going to eat of the tree, how can God know that? If God doesn't even know a moment before, uh, you know, Abraham doesn't plunge or was about to plunge the knife that, that Abraham trusted God, how does God know this hundreds of years in advance that Israel would apostatize? All right, let me, let me keep reading. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? but i will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do and they will turn to other uh, for they will turn to other gods now therefore write this song for yourselves and teach it to your sons of israel put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of israel for when i bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey which i swore to their fathers and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants, for I know their intent. Really? He knows the intent of their future descendants? Really, the descendants of their descendants? He knows their intent already, even though he doesn't know they exist? I know their intent, which they are developing today. Really? It's already starting way back, generations before. Before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Interesting. When you put these two verses together, you cannot read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, which is God is somehow surprised that Israel has fallen and and, and broken covenant. With God being surprised, it's expressly what he predicted, prophesied what happened. Right. What about Psalm 139? This came up in the debate. Psalm 139 uh, talks 139:4 says that He knows every word before it's on our lips. Right? How does He know that it's that it's uh, that it's on our lips if we haven't freely chosen what words? Well, Duffy tried to say, well, you know, it's in our mind before it's on our lips, and God knows our mind. So then, our, is our mind determined? Did we not freely choose? What, what we would say? And by the way, I mean, this is from your mind to your lips is, a, is an instant, right? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, just, it's just obscenely, it, I mean, the, the whole point of this, he says in Psalm 139 is that, is that this knowledge is too wonderful for him to understand. Really? I, I can tell I can tell by my, my I know my wife very well I can and I know friends very well I can tell by looking at them what's on their mind before it hits their lips I can finish their sentences sometimes, right? It, is that knowledge so wonderful that it comes from God that He knows something a split second before they say it? If I can do the same thing, is that really too wonderful for us to attain? Of course not. He he. It, of course that's not wonderful. It it. it, it God knows. The point is that God knows it from eternity past. He, He knows it before I existed. That's why this passage. You know, Duffy made this big thing. Oh, this is about fetal development. Right? There's this section that goes into fetal development. Makes this big deal about it. The whole point of it this passage, he's, he knows the words that are even on my lips. Then it goes into this fetal development saying, showing, you know, even from what, he knew this from before I was born, he knew what, what, what words would be on my lips. That's the import of this. That's why it goes to the birth, right? 139.5, God is the one who sets what comes before us and after us. 139.7 is God's omnipresence. Where can I flee from your presence? Why do, we take, why do we take the omnipresence verses all-encompassing, but not the other ones about what he knows? Once psalm 139.16, the same psalm says, all our days were written in his book before even one of them existed. Right? How is this possible on open theism? Right Now Duffy tried to say, oh, well, that's, that's, that's God knows you know the days of fetal development. Well, that's not what the text says. The text says, all of my days... Right, the psalmist is talking about his life, all of my days, how long I'm gonna live. God knows beforehand, right? He knows it from the womb, right? We could argue from other passages he knows it before that, but the, but but it's very clear the psalmist is talking about God has numbered all of my days. He's not he's not saying oh well well God, God knew the process of my fetal development. I mean that's just that's just a ludicrous reading of this passage. What about what about in the book of John? John 13, 19. Right? Jesus' own ability to predict his own betrayal is given precisely as the sign that he is God. Right? Let's let's look at that. Let's look at John. Uh, John 13, verse 19. Right? Uh, John 13, verse 19. Uh, let's, start, let's actually back up uh, a little bit. Uh, verse 16. <clears throat> Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen, but it is the scripture that will be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Here he's talking about Judas. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when they occur, that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Right? He, he says, from now on, I'm going to tell you things uh, before they come to pass, the, 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 so that when they occur, you know that I am ego me. I am Yahweh. In fact, the, the the very sign that Jesus gives so that his people could know that he is God is the fact that he can tell the future. And the future thing that he's telling is Judas's betrayal of him that was predicted way back in the Old Testament, apparently before God knew Judas would exist. Right? So not only did he knew, is he able to say the free will decision of Judas in Jesus's life, he's pointing to the prediction of the free will decision of Judas's life way back in the prophets before apparently on the open theist view before God would even know that Judas would have existed. Right? This is clearly showing that God has exhaustive foreknowledge. What about in John 13, 38 and 18, 19 to 27, where he predicts Peter denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows? Does, does knowing the heart of Peter solve the problem? Right. Well, Because the open theist is going to say, well, he knows the heart of Peter. Right. Notice, notice, by the way, the inconsistency. He knows the heart of Peter that he can predict Peter's actions in the future, but apparently he needs the test of, of Isaac to know the heart of Abraham right notice the inconsistency but what if what if after one denial the crowd didn't believe peter and they because they have their free will decisions and they seized him and brought him to the sanhedrin to be tortured and so he denied jesus over and 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 over again right how does knowing the heart show that that he, that that he would predict that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows? He could have denied him a hundred times before the rooster crows. He could have, what, if, what if he denied him one time, but then he saw James and John who had freely decided to come, and so he didn't want to stay and keep denying him because he would have felt ashamed, and so he would have left, right? Any number of free will decisions, which is part of the open theist view, could have undone it, Right? I mean, open, the open theist view that somehow the heart knowledge would would entail the, three, the thrice denial before the rooster crows is just dumb. What if the little slave girl freely chose to sit just somewhere else and never questioned him? So he never had to deny him. Or if someone sat blocking her view so she couldn't really see him. Or what if Peter chose to sit somewhere else and so on? Right. How how does how does knowing the heart of Peter mean that he would know, therefore, that someone wouldn't sit be him, between him and the slave girl? Or that the slave girl wouldn't sit somewhere else? Or Peter wouldn't I mean it's just it's just obscenely absurd to have that as the justification for the view. In fact, on Luke, Luke 22, 34 predicts not only that Peter will deny Jesus, but would return to Jesus and minister to strengthen the faith of Jesus' followers. If Peter's nature is consistent with both freely choosing to deny and freely choosing not to deny, and with denying and then being strong in faith, then the spiritual condition of Peter's nature is actually indeterminate with his actions. So knowing the heart of God would be indeterministic over their future actions. And so the, on the open theist view, on the libertarian view, knowing the person's heart actually wouldn't entail their ability to know what they would freely choose in the future because their nature, their heart, would be indeterministic. Over their future actions. So they wouldn't be able to know that in the future. What about Acts 13 48? Remember, I'm still just going on some of the verses that have to deal with showing that God has exhausted knowledge of the future, even of free will decisions. Right? Acts 13 48 reads, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? Who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Those who were predestined to eternal life. Right? It doesn't say that they believed and then they got appointed to eternal life. They were appointed to eternal life and therefore they believed. That's the order. What about Revelation thirteen eight? That reads, And all who dwell on the earth who, who, uh, will worship it. Who Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, uh, book of, life of the Lamb who was slain. Who's going who's to worship the, the, the false prophet and the beast? Those whose names were not written before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That all those who are in the Lamb, who believe had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. Yet Duffy in the debate wanted to say that Jesus didn't even know that he existed, that Jesus didn't even die loving Will Duffy specifically, that on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't die knowing Will Duffy's name. And yet here, Revelation 13, 8 says that if Will Duffy is a Christian, which by all all accounts, I don't believe he's a brother because he denies basically every single fundamental aspect of Christianity. Whoever's a Christian, their name would have already been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. Right? What about other passages? What about passages that talk about God choosing someone before their birth? Paul says that he was set apart before he was born in Galatians 1.15. How could that happen if Paul could have made millions of small, insignificant decisions that would have radically altered the, the course of his life? The same thing for Jeremiah and Jeremiah 1.5, by the way. What if Paul had made a decision to, to drink some water? Back in this day, they didn't have a lot of water purification. What if he chose to drink some water that killed him? God God how would God have set him apart before birth for for you know this this untimely born apostle to be an apostle of Jesus Christ if he didn't even if he didn't even know the future of Paul's life the the the, the, the biblical inconsistency of open theism is just absurd when you start actually digging down and drilling into it we could ask i mean we we could continue to go into all of the theological consistency problems of their quote-unquote straightforward passage Right? How do they deal with passages that straightforwardly say that God foreknew and that God predestined, like Romans 8, 28 to 30, Ephesians 1, 4 to 13, John 15, uh, verse 16, uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9, right? Proverbs 16, 4. Right? How do you go into all these passages that talk about God electing us in Christ from before the foundations of the world? How do you go into how do you how do you deal with those things? It's, it's impossible to understand, right? How how the open theist can do this. Okay, I'm gonna save what I have. The, the rest of this stuff kind of gets into theological issues and philosophical issues where where you know is God free, is God temporal? Because Duffy makes a big point of this in his opening statement. Right. His opening statement, if you actually listen to it, and I, and I pressed him on this, his opening statement over and over and over again just, just said, well, a timeless God couldn't do that. A timeless God can't do this. A timeless, you know, a, a, a timeless, because he wants to deny that God is timeless. He wants to say that God is in time, right? And there's a whole bunch of problems with those. But he just made assertion after assertion after assertion after assertion, right? A, a timeless God couldn't move over the face of the waters in Genesis 1, right? A, 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 a temporal God uh, a, 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 a couldn't couldn't uh, take on a new nature in the hypostatic union, over and over and over again, he's a, 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 they couldn't change the past, right? There, there's there's a timeless God can't experience change of emotions. A timeless God wouldn't know that that didn't know that Adam would name the animals, right? Over and over and over again, right? He makes all these claims. Never once does he actually argue for it. He just begs the question, over and over and over again. So I want to get to those in a different episode. Where I deal with the philosophical and theological issues going into it. But really fast, before I wrap this up, and I am going to wrap this up because right now we are going on, wow, a little over an hour. Thanks for sticking in there, guys. Uh, really fast, I wanted to go over, um, because I want to kind of stay on this biblical motif. What right? does the Bible teach about these things, and are they handling these things accurately? He, he says that, they, that, that we would expect certain types of biblical verses right? if God um, knew of the exhaustive future. Right, and and if God was 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 timeless, right? He said he said we'd expect these we'd expect these passages that say that God is outside of time. Uh, why, right? We we have the, we have these passages that says that God is the creator of all things. Well, if time is 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 part of all things, then then God is the creator of time. So God would not himself be ten be time bound, right? We 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 have these things that said God is from everlasting to everlasting. That, that God that God stands in the heavens above, right? That, that, that God created the age and the ages, right? It's, it's fairly clearly that God is outside of time and created time, right? He says there's, there's, the, the, ne, there's never a passage that says God created time. Really? It doesn't say that God created all things. It doesn't say that God created the age and the ages. It doesn't say that, really? That one's just false. Um, it, it says that, it, it would, um, uh, he, uh, that he never knows us prior to our birth, Right? He says, okay, you know, there are passages that seem that God knows us during you know our fetal development, but we already exist by then. There's never one that says he knows us prior to our birth. Really? Ephesians 1, he 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 knew us in Christ. We, we were predestined for adoption in Christ before the foundations of the world. Really? Revelation 13, which I read, where our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundations of the world. Really? That that Romans 8, where it says that that the, all those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Really, he wants to say that it doesn't. It doesn't say that. It's clearly in there. Uh, he he wants to say that there's no verse that says God exists in the past or in the future. Okay, why why would the Bible makes the Bible isn't a philosophical book, really, right? The Bible isn't trying to say, okay, well, let me give you this philosophical understanding of, of of a timeless God who who is outside of time and that he, right. Another problem is that well, God is timeless. It's not that God exists in the past or in the future so even a timeless god the bible wouldn't say that anyways because that would be false of a timeless god god doesn't exist in the past or in the future god is timeless that's just what it means um he said there's no verse that says that god changes the past which was weird because he seems to assume that that a timeless god would go and change the past which again by the way already begs the question that god is time bound that he would actually have to go into the past to change the past but whatever. But even if not, um, if God has predestined whatsoever comes to happen, why would he have to go and change the past which he had already decreed what would happen, and it happened how he decreed it would happen, right? We wouldn't expect to see that type of verse, right? He, he also says that we never see passages that he decreed everything that will happen. Well, yeah, we do. The, the passage we went over in Isaiah, right? He declares um, whatsoever comes to pass. He declares the beginning from the ends, Right? He works out all, thing, all things for, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? We see these over and over and over again. Right? And what was interesting is he actually, in his opening statement, he used Genesis 18. He used Genesis 22, which I said he would. He used the Jeremiah passages, uh, which I said he would. Right? And I had already refuted. And he said exactly what I said. I refuted him, and I never got a rejoinder. In fact, he doubled down. For him, God only doesn't not know he doesn't know the future, he doesn't know the present, God doesn't know the past, God doesn't know our hearts, God is 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 temporally bound, God is locationally bound. Remember he says that God actually did have to come down to Sodom and Gomorrah to find out what was happening? right god god is god is 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 uh, passable his passions his emotions change given what we do god god is actually not he not a say he doesn't have a say, he denies a say because god changes his nature changes given creation right there are so many things that 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 the open theist like Duffy denies Right. So hopefully this gives you a little bit of a taste. And, and I know it's you know we're going on uh, well over an hour. Uh, I, I hope this gives you a taste of the massive, massive problems. And I'm only scratching the surface. I think there will probably be three or four more episodes dealing with open theism, dealing with some of its theological uh, errors, dealing with more of its hermeneutical errors, dealing with a lot of its uh, philosophical errors, on and on and on they go. I'm gonna go through uh, Duffy's list because he always he always brings up this list as if it's this important thing. Um, he just proof texts things. A lot of times out of context. Never gives exegetical or hermeneutical notes. I mean, he just he just proof texts them as if we're all gonna be like, oh my, oh my gosh, I've never thought of that I don't know how to handle that verse well, I'll handle those verses. We'll we'll go through those. There's going to be a lot of content coming out of open theism because as I studied it, I realized how pervasively problematic it was. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, If you want to check out the debate and see the discussion, please uh, go look that up. You can find it. Uh, on the gospel truth on youtube i'll link it on my youtube as well i'll put a link in the show notes for you to check that out thank you again for joining me Uh, if you have any questions comments concerns commendations or condemnations please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at uh, at gmail.com visit the blog the freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or find the freed thinker group page on facebook until we meet again keep on being freed and thinking freely good night and god bless